in chapter 12, verses 27 and 28, 30 to 31, and 38 to 43. If you don't have a Bible, it will be up on our screens. We ask that you all read along. Um, and I ask forgiveness up front. There's a lot of names. <clears throat> I'll do my best. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians were also brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netaphilites. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had leaders of Judah go up on the top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, the Jashana gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Sheep Gate. At the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Ilionai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with their trumpets. And also Messiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Usi, Yehohanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Iser. The choir sang under the direction of Jesrahiah, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. This is the word of God. Let's pray for our service, please. Lord God, your joy is a permanent joy. It is a joy everlasting. And as we get deeper into you, it radiates our being. Lord, thank you. Thank you for all of the joy that you have given us. Thank you for our pastor and thank you for his words. Lord, flow through him this day and help him to give us your word in clear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. Thank you. I wanted to offer a prayer real quick just for the family of uh, Bill Henricks, um, recently losing his father. And also, um, some of you um, probably have heard of this already, but one of our members, Angel McGee, her, her husband, his name is Sean. And we've been praying um, for Sean's mom, who lives in Florida, because she's, um, she was recently diagnosed with cancer. Well, recently she passed away. Um, the doctors didn't give her long to live, so it wasn't um, entirely, I think it was surprising when they first heard the news that she had cancer, because it wasn't something, something that she had suffered with long, but, um, but when they found it, um, they said it was so advanced that she didn't really have much time. So she recently did pass away, so why don't we, they, they live in Florida, and to be quite honest, I'm not sure if the, their funeral and wake is gonna be in Florida or here or not, but the McGee's live here, so why don't we just pray for them and um, just ask God's comfort in their time of grief. God, we um, come to you 
And God, we ask you, Lord, to be the comforter, Lord, of people who are grieving. Lord, your word says in Psalm 34 that you are near to those with a broken heart. So God, we ask you, Lord, to be near to the McGee family, to be near to Sean in particular. God, I pray, Lord, that the compassionate love of Christ would reach his heart and that he would see the great love um, displayed at the cross. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this situation, this difficult time, to bring glory um, to Jesus Christ by bringing many to faith in Jesus. Bless Faith and Mackenzie and Angel as they grieve as well. And I want to pray for Bill and his family as well. God, just be with them and bless them in their time of loss as well. And God, again, use the situation in the Henricks family to, um, to usher people into new faith and new life in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So just very excited this morning to be gathered as the local church with you, um, to be uh, members of Christ's eternal kingdom. Um, if you have put faith in Jesus, that is our birthright, um, and that is our hope in Christ. Amen. So it's so good to see everybody this morning. God bless you. Thank you for being here. I love, um, in particular, that passage that we just read. Um, it's, it was sort of, I've I've read the Bible many times, but you know, you read it sometimes quickly and things don't always stand out to you as significantly as they do when you're studying a passage more in depth. And um, I couldn't help but just meditate frequently this week on verse 43, the very last verse. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I could just kind of think about that for a while. They could hear the joy of Jerusalem far away. And I want to meditate on you uh, on this passage this morning with you, and I hope that the Lord Jesus Christ encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. Um, If you're new this morning, I'm just so glad that you're here with us. Um, Maybe you've been here um, two or three times. Um, You're back again today. God bless you. Thank you for being here. We've been going through the book of Nehemiah, we're about finished with it, it's 13 chapters long, and uh, we're approaching the end of chapter 12, so we've probably been in this book for about six months now, and just been really exciting, the main, um, main storyline, the plot of Nehemiah is basically a massive rebuilding project, the walls of Jerusalem had been um, destroyed when um, the Babylonians basically decimated Jerusalem, and um, brought the, the remaining... Uh, Israelites into captivity in in Babylon. Uh, Persia eventually took over Babylon, and Persia became the reigning superpower. And under the Persian king, King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. This was a very powerful position um, at the time. Nehemiah basically would sip the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. (laughs) So if it was, goodbye Nehemiah, long live the king. That was the point of the cupbearer. It might seem kind of like in, you know, a simple task that it would just let any slave do, but it was actually a great position of power. Nehemiah must have been a very um, intelligent person, attention to detail kind of thing, because you don't want to wrap your lips around that mug, right? So he was very um, educated, he was very smart, he was a good leader, and he had a lot of power. One day he got a report about Jerusalem that... The walls were a shambles, and no one was living in the city. And this was disheartening to Nehemiah because the book right before Nehemiah is the book of Ezra. 
and Ezra, there was a return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they did rebuild the temple, but that was it. The walls remained broken down, the people got discouraged, and no one moved in. So the temple is done, but nobody's living in the city. There's no protection. The walls are broken down. So Nehemiah begins to weep, not just because the walls were broken down, but because the people had not repented of their sin. They were still far from God. That was the, and this is basically the whole point of the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is not about a massive building project. It's about the hearts of God's people. It's about the presence of God in, in the people of God. You can imagine Jerusalem as a, a, an example of the church, the local church like we are here today. The local church is meant to give worship to Jesus Christ, to praise him, to live our faith out together. And if we weren't doing that, there'd be wrong. There'd be something wrong with that. The, the Bible has given the church the responsibility of guarding the gospel and fellowshipping in our faith around Jesus Christ, being responsible one to, each, to another. If the church isn't doing this, then that's a big problem. And that's what was happening in Nehemiah's day in Israel and Jerusalem. <clears throat> so last time we gathered, we looked at the book of Nehemiah. We were in chapters um, 11 and 12, and we basically observed a large list of people who stepped out in faith to occupy Jerusalem. Uh, it was a city, as I said, that had been destroyed and abandoned, and these brave souls rebuilt the walls. They confessed and repented of their corporate sin, and they dedicated themselves to obey the Lord and to move back in, to start being a worshiping community again, to not let sin interfere or rejection of God's word or disobedience to his will. They had repented, they had um, put up the word of God again. They heard the word of God read. They repented and de dedicated their lives to following Yahweh. The second half of chapter 12 is basically a celebration. So the previous verses we looked at were all of these brave souls that decided to move into Jerusalem, back into the worshiping community. And this part of chapter 12 is basically a celebration. We could really call it a Thanksgiving Day Parade right, of a kind that we perhaps don't know much about. There's singers, there's trumpets, there's musician, musicians, there's praising, there's priests, there's worship, there's also, it's a festival of joy. And if you missed that, um, I hope that you didn't, but that's basically the heart of what's going on. They're marching around Jerusalem on top of the wall that they had just built in rejoicing uh, and giving great praise to God. The text opens, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and they were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. A lyre is an instrument, musical instrument. And what it, so what's going on here? King David, many centuries before, had appointed the tribe of Levi to be the gatekeepers and singers of the temple. So they needed the Levites to come back and to lead uh, Jerusalem, the Israelites, in this praise and thanksgiving again. So this is exactly what Nehemiah sets out to do. You can notice here a commitment to the word of God, can't you? They're, they're examining scripture and seeing what is the proper order, what has God said to us about how we should worship him. They're paying attention to what God's word says and they're following it. The, the, the city and the temple had long since heard singing in their streets. It knew nothing but decay and rodents and, and um, basically abandonment. The Babylonian captivity had silenced that music, brought down the great walls. But today, 
God had demonstrated his faithfulness. The temple was rebuilt, the walls were erected, the people had repented, and the city was filled. What a glorious day. It was a cause for celebration. It's, time, it's party time. It's time for a party. You know that the very first miracle Jesus Christ did was to get a, party, a dying party going? <laughs> the party was dying, and Jesus said, this is no good. Let's get this party started right. Okay? To quote CNC Music Factory. <laughs> Let's get this party going. Because there's a party coming, friends. Did you know that? There's a party coming. And that party includes the King of Kings and Lord of Lords returning to this earth with us behind him to reclaim what's his so that the lion can sleep with the lamb and that the bride can be wed to the groom Jesus Christ. There is a great feast coming. And every time we gather, it pictures that great gathering to come. It's a great time. It's good news. And it's worthy of our joy. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God has saved you so that you could come to his party. Isn't that great? Oh, we think of God as boring. We think he's just up there kind of esoteric and playing harps and doing things we just don't want to do. There's a party going on. And we're invited. And if you've had faith in Jesus Christ, you're there. Not only are you there, but you're the bride. You're not the angel. You're not the guest. You're not the friend who was invited to the wedding. You're not even the best man. You're the one that's going to be wed to Jesus Christ. Wow. Rejoice. Rejoice. Good news. And what a great segue, by the way, into our next series that I'm going to call Rejoice Evermore. Um, and that passage actually, um, interestingly enough, is not taken from the book that I'm actually, um, st- we're actually going to say. We're going to study the book of Philippians. Um, and Philippians basically is a letter about joy. And that's why I want to turn to there. Because you know what? I, I feel in my life, and I, and I see this in lives around us of Christians who just don't have it. Something's going on. Something's wrong. God's will for our lives as believers in Jesus is great joy. Great joy. Not misery, not depression, not bitterness or anger. It's joy. And this morning, I want to look very much um, this morning, at, if we could, at the, shape, the four shapes of joy that we see in this great group of Israelites and how we can model it ourselves in our lives, how we can find that joy if perchance per you've lost it as a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, oh friend, come to Jesus and know this joy. It's a joy far-reaching, and it has four shapes. Joy in the new birth, joy is shared, joy is heard, and joy has windows. So let's go. You ready? Joy in the new birth. Uh, Jay Gordon McConville is uh, a, a writer and a scholar, one of today's premier Old Testament scholars. If you don't know much about the Bible, the Bible basically has two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew, and the New Testament's written in Greek. So a lot of times these scholars just kind of um, focus on one over the other to get really good at it, if that makes sense. So this guy's an Old Testament scholar, written a lot of wonderful commentaries on Old Testament books. And all, all a commentary basically is, explains passages if they're difficult to understand. He notes in his comments on Nehemiah that it's curious to him, and other scholars, by the way, point this out, 
why the dedication of the wall, of the completed wall, would occur so far after the project was actually done. Now, if you, might have, you might miss this if, um, um, if you recall in chapter 6. So this is six chapters ago. It says in verse 15, So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Ilul in 52 days. For six chapters, this wall was done. It was completed. Why not just have a party right away? Why not plan the party, you, you, you know, like, okay, the last bricks are looking like it's going to be on Wednesday. Let's have, a, let's have a, a party on the weekend. Why not just do that? The walls are done. So it's curious to him, why on earth did they ha- dedicate these walls? Why did they have this celebration so far after? A great deal of activity happened after the completion of the wall and before its dedication. Remember what we've what we've gone through, especially in particular in chapter 12 in its entirety, you're going to notice this great celebration. They're having this dedication, this celebration, priests and musicians and leaders and great crowds along with Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra, by the way, rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. Ezra leads one company in one direction around the top of the newly constructed wall, and Nehemiah takes another group of people the other way. So they're basically making a big circle like this, meeting at the top. They move from south to north, one company taking the east, the other taking the west. In verse 38, it reads this, the second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. Okay? I, want, I want to note something because there are different translations of the Bible. Um, different ways of kind of translating words and stuff, and some of them are easier to read. The, the English Standard Version, I'm sorry, the, um, yeah, the English Standard Version reads, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. So did you notice the difference there? One translation says, the second choir proceeded in the opposite direction, and the, the, this other translation says, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And it's interesting because the actual translation there should be thanksgiving went to the north. Just one word. So in other words, the title of this group is thanksgiving. The the purpose of this assembly, in other words, is to thank God, to praise God for what he's done. So here's this actual thanksgiving group, the whole community from the top down assembled for the express purpose of giving thanks and praise to God for what he's done. So they march around the walls, they meet at the top, and then what do they do? They enter the temple. They go into the temple. I, I think perhaps they might have had Psalm chapter 68 in mind. Your procession is seen, O God. The procession of my God, my King into the sanctuary. They're going to the temple. Why did they wait so long after the walls were done to do this? In McConville notes, it's clear that the walls are not an end in themselves. Had their official dedication come immediately upon the completion, that, it was, that would be precisely the impression that would be given. It wasn't about walls. They weren't there for that reason. Upon the completion of the wall, what did we see happen in in sermons prior to this, in the text before? They started reading scripture. They started repenting of their sin. You see, they started renovating not walls, but their spiritual lives. The life of God in them needed to be rebuilt. 
That's the point of this passage. And then finally, we see them covenant, not only recognize their sin at the, at the hearing of the law, but they begin to covenant, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to begin to tithe again. We're going to begin to, right? We're not going to marry foreign, foreign marriages, all these different things where they're dedicating themselves to obey Scripture. That renovation of heart is what, was go, what they were going for. And why? Because of the presence of God in the temple. This was about God's blessing, God's presence. God's marriage to them. That's what this is all about. The heart of the matter wasn't the walls, but the presence of God. And that's what the temple signifies in the Old Testament. The temple wasn't just a building. It was the presence of God, the blessing of God, relationship with God. That's what they, their hearts longed for. So cause for rejoicing wasn't because they had accomplished a difficult task. Or that the city of their fathers stood again. It wasn't some kind of sentimental consummation. They weren't delighting. They weren't, it, friends, they weren't even delighting that God had provided a wall for them. Right? There was something bigger than that going on. The cause of their rejoicing was grounded in God's grace that he had forgiven them. Did you hear that? They deserved nothing but his punishment and judgment for their disobedience, but they were objects of his favor. And God showed up in the camp. You see, God should have showed up that day not as a loving father or a faithful bridegroom, but as a judge. And that's not who showed up that day. He was in the camp to wed his people. Wow. Rejoice evermore. Their joy was grounded in their right relationship with God, repaired by his sheer grace and his kind will. And friends, if there is any cause for rejoicing for us this morning, it's the exact same thing. It's not because God has given us a building or we raise some money so we can knock some walls down. And those are all great things and praise God for that. We rejoice not in those things, but as Jesus said, rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. You remember this? He, Jesus Christ gives his apostles power to go out and to heal people and to cast out demons. And they come back and they're all excited. And they say, Jesus, you should have been there. It was amazing. Demons were leaving people and sicknesses were getting healed. And you'd think Jesus would be like, wow, that's so cool, man. Well, good for you guys. You did it. He almost kind of rebukes them. He says, slow down, guys, because here's what you should be rejoicing in. Not that demons are subject to you, but that your names are written in the book of life. In other words, rejoice because you have been forgiven. None of your sins, if you are in Christ, will ever be held against you. They're gone. Rejoice. You see, we should be meeting a God who, in his own righteousness, in all his fairness and justice, should separate us from his love forever. But we don't get that from our God. In Christ, we get his love. And we get forgiveness. Rejoice. That's why Paul in prison, shackled to a wall, could say, rejoice in the Lord always. 
incredible. It's got to mean that your joy is not connected to your problems. Doesn't it have to mean that? Because if, if, if Paul is in a prison on his way to die, and he can have great full joy, that means that I should be able to get sick or lose my house and still have joy. Friends, please don't get me wrong. I know things happen that cause us grief, and they should cause us grief. Jesus wept, but not as those without hope. We have joy in Christ because of the good news of Christ. So joy is grounded in our new birth, in our forgiveness of sin. Amen? Number two, joy is shared. Joy is shared. You can't have joy alone. Try it. It won't happen. Anyone ever been really happy about anything in their life? I mean, at least once in your life. Can you raise your hand nice and high for me so I can see you? Okay, so maybe some of us have actually had a lot of great joy and great happiness maybe twice, right, in their lives. How many people know when something really just turns you on, you start telling people? Don't you? People that don't care, you tell. I'm getting married. Who are you? I don't even know you. Can you just pay for your coffee, please? <laughs> you tell everybody. You share your joy. It's, so it's clear in this text that there's throngs of people from all walks of life, companies of choirs and priests and Levites, all together, rich people and poor people, old people and young people, leaders and tribes and families, women and children, sharing in different ways the worship of God for what he's done. They're sharing in this joy. And again, it's not because they, he built them a wall, but because he was present. He had forgiven them and not abandoned them. Let's read verse 43 again. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. He's saying joy a lot, isn't he? <laughs> the women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Five times the word for joy is used, some in, uh, in a noun form and others in a verb form. Five times this word for joy is used in one, cent in one verse. The, the, the Hebrew word is used five times. God not only calls us to rejoice as believers in Jesus, he calls us to rejoice together, right? To speak it to each other. Do you remember, friend, what Jesus has done for you? Isn't it great to dance like David danced, to jump and to leap for what God has done? God calls us to rejoice. I have a responsibility. You know what that means? That I have a, I have a responsibility to rejoice with the 10-year-olds and the 7-year-olds and the 80-year-olds and people who aren't like me because we're both the objects of God's favor in Christ. If that 12-year-old or 13-year-old knows Jesus, they're just as much as an object of God's favor as I am and I can rejoice with them for what God has done for us. A company of celebration. All of these people are part of the worshiping community in Nehemiah. You probably noticed it. Families, women, children, everybody. Everyone's there. And friends, isn't that true of our, of our community as well? All kinds of people, all ages, all socioeconomic classes. We're all here even in this small church. And we get to rejoice together, not because someone's rich versus poor or someone's smart versus dumb, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Rejoice evermore, a great company of celebration. 
And let's not forget who else this joy is being shared with this day in this company of Israelites. God himself is there. He's the one they're praising. He's the, you, if you don't have another soul on this earth and you're stuck in a desert island by yourself, you can still rejoice with the company of angels and God himself. Joy is meant to be shared, friend. He's the source of our joy, the object of our praise. You remember in the verse, God had made them rejoice. God can give you joy in Christ. And it's not because the, the joy that he gives you won't come from money that he supplies or fame or fortune. It's going to come from the salvation he offers you. And when you reply in humble repentance and faith, know that joy that comes from that. I recall um, once hearing a pastor describe what it means to give God glory. You ever hear people say that, let's give glory to God. Well, what does that even mean? That sounds weird. It sounds kind of like religious-y, and I don't, <laughs> I don't like it when I don't understand what people mean when they speak. So let's, let's talk about that. He explained it a little bit. What does it mean to give anything glory? And I think that's how we understand this a little bit. <clears throat> the way we give anything glory is the way we give God glory. So how do we give anything glory? Well, let me try, try to explain it to you with two different illustrations. Have you ever seen a beautiful sunset? Right? Just, you're driving home, it's not your average sun. It's red, it's big, something's going on. I think it has to do with science. I'm not sure. I can't explain it, but every now and then, the sun looks huge, and it's all red, and it's beautiful. Sometimes you might even stop your car to look at it. And if you're like me, you might even take a picture. It never looks the same. <laughs> I, you know, we're looking at this beautiful sunset, and what do we do? Wow. And what do we do when we get home? Honey, did you see the sunset? You've got to go out and see it. Let's go look at it together. It's amazing. Now that I have kids, I'll do the same thing. Mandy, Noelle, Pearl, let's go outside. You've got to see the sunset. It's amazing. What am I doing? I'm delighting in something glorious, and I'm sharing it. You see, it's never alone. Anyone who's ever taken delight in something or gloried in something knows that one of the first things you do is not, not only are you in this, the moment somehow, you're not the sun, you're not the beautiful sun, but somehow you're experiencing this moment, and it's almost like you're a part of it. And that's what it means to, give, to, to credit something as great and then to share it, to applaud it almost. Let me give you another illustration. And I think if you know what I mean when I say the snow game, you know what I, how many people know what I mean when I say the snow game? So you're a Pats fan, okay? I got four of them in the room. The snow game, for me, was probably the second greatest football game I've ever watched in my life. The first one, I'm sorry, was the last Super Bowl. Amazing. Just jaw to the floor, what's going on here? A game, a game they should have lost, and then something starts happening. At some point in the game, if you watch that game, you'll just know Something started. You were witnessing something rare, something fantastic, and you were on the edge of your seat. You know, it's funny because after that, the, the, the snow game this happened, but also the, the football, I hear people talking about it. Where were you when you watched it? I was at my friend's house. I almost went home because I thought they were, I went to bed. Some people went to bed. <laughs> You start talking about it because you know you just witnessed something really rare. There, there was greatness on display that is very rarely on display. And if you've ever seen grown men hug, it's quite a scene. Because that's what we were doing. Normally I don't do things like this. 
but I'm literally jumping up and down, hugging people I barely know because of what just happened. And that, friends, that's what it means to give glory to something. We're recognizing that something great is happening. I'm not even doing it. I'm just watching it. And friends, it's the exact same. And, and not, not only am I watching it, but I start sharing it. I start applauding it with other people. It's almost, as part, it's almost as if that part of the joy that I get from it comes from sharing it. it. In other words, it would be less fun if I didn't have anyone there with me to celebrate. Isn't that true? And that's what it means to give God glory, friends. To be able to know who God is, to really know him, that he created all things visible and invisible, that he knows the hairs on my head, that he has counted them. And not only is he great and glorious in his power for making the sun that I'm in awe of sometimes and the mountains that I climb and I'm in awe of the view, that he's the one that actually made those things. Not only that, but he's rescued us with, with the blood of his son. That I deserved his just wrath because of my disobedience to his word. But he decides to send Jesus to forgive my sin, that he would pay for it instead of me, so that he could marry me. So that I could be his bride and he could be the bridegroom. Oh, rejoice, friends. This is what's happening in this parade. They're not happy that they're walking on stones on a wall. They're rejoicing because they were his people and God was present. And they shared it. They shared that joy. And friend, we need to share our joy. Don't sit on it. First find it, but then share it with somebody. Because that's what we do with everything else in life. Let's do it with something that matters. That really matters. I love football, but honestly, it just, on a certain level, I don't mean to demean it, but it just doesn't matter. Right? It's fun, and I guess it matters on a certain level because people are working hard. But it's comparatively to the God of the universe and the redemption in Christ, that's way better. So let's share our joy. Number three, joy is heard. Oh, isn't it heard? It's just kind of assumed if I'm saying joy is shared, that joy is heard. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God has given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Oh, isn't that great? And could I ask us today, if we're believers in Christ, what sound might be heard by not yet Christians if they were listening in our homes, in our churches? In our hearts, would it be grumbling, or complaining, anger, regret, discontent? If your heart bleeds every day, could I ask you why? Ephesians 4.31 says, get rid of all bitterness, wrath, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Because that kind of heart is not a heart rejoicing. What might our neighbors hear far away? What are we known for? People notice joy. <laughs> Why are you so happy? Are you on drugs? <laughs> Why do you have joy? You don't even have new shoes. 
or a new car. You lost your job. What's the matter with you people? People notice joy. And if you don't know joy as a Christian, friends, not only is it possible, but it's God's will for our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Wow. Finally, joy has windows. Joy has windows, number four. Joy is not only grounded in the new life granted to us right now by our faith in Jesus Christ, the life that he provides in Christ. That was our point one, remember. It's grounded in the hope of the life to come. The life to come. There's a popular pastor and scholar, um, missiologist, apologist, you guys have mentioned him before, Tim Keller, once compared the life of a not-yet-Christian to the life of a Christian with a house illustration. I think I might have even shared this illustration with you before. If I have, just bear with me. I want you to consider two houses. So one house is, is the Christian house. The other is a not-yet-Christian house. So there, there are these two houses. And both houses have typical items in them. Furniture and family and bedrooms and kitchens and everything a house would have. Both have similar challenges in them. Disease and maybe death or rebellion, conflict, debt, job loss, types of things that families go through in that house. The only difference between the Christian house and the not yet Christian house is that the Christian house has windows and the not yet Christian house does not have windows. Okay? So just follow this illustration. That's the only difference. One is a windowless house and one has windows. The house without windows sees everything that happens inside the house as the point to their life. It's the end. It's what gives them significance or self-esteem or worth. Everything that happens, so if things are going good and the kids are getting along and I have a job that makes money, think, uh, I, I guess I'm an okay guy. But when things start falling apart, so does your self-esteem and your worth. So when, when things go bad, you're crushed. When they go good, you have some relative peace. But the house with windows is able to see through the ebbs and flows of life's trials to the outside. There's something beyond it. And that helps you do two things. That when things go good, you don't get arrogant. And when things go bad, you know there's something beyond it. See? It gives you ballast in difficult times of life. The house with windows is able to see through this. There's a greater point and purpose to our existence that the interior of the house doesn't define. That the thing that outs, that's outside the house is what defines me and what identifies me and who makes me who I am. And that's what it means to be a Christian, and that is our power of joy. To see through our, the windows to the world beyond, to Jesus Christ, to where he's leading us in eternity. So there's a common theme, if you didn't know this, in Scripture. Um, the phrase oftentimes that we hear is the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about it a lot in the Gospels. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. The whole scripture is about God the king ruling over his creation as king our kingdom. Okay? Sin defunct it all. It created problems and conflict. Okay? But the kingdom, the kingdom of God in scripture is his righteous rule. His reign over everything. Peace on earth, right? Goodwill towards men. All these things that we hear about. Perfect joy. Right relationship with him. That's the kingdom of God realized. The way that people talk about the kingdom of God, theologians, is with a phrase, already not yet. I don't know if you've heard this before. The kingdom of God is already not yet. Okay? The kingdom of God is already. The kingdom of God is not yet. Let me explain to you what this means. 
The believer in Christ is given his kingdom and his spirit and his life right now. If you've put trust in Jesus Christ, you get the divine life, the gift of God's presence in your heart this moment. Your sins this moment are forgiven, and you have the power of the Holy Spirit, God's presence, on you right now. You're not waiting for that. It's yours to take right now. It's your birthright. It's your inheritance. But there's an, so, the, there's an, so that's the kingdom of God right now in us. But there's an aspect to the kingdom of God that is yet unrealized. We still sin. We still get sick and die. There's a, there's a kingdom to come, a not yet. Right? That's the, the, the theological term is eschatological. That's the eschatological hope. That is, and all that word means is things to come, future things. So there's a not yet aspect to the kingdom. What a great verse that perfectly illustrates this in 1 John chapter 2 in the New Testament. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Right? Already. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. There's a day coming, friends, where Jesus Christ will come back. And when you see him, you will be like him because you will see him as he is. Friends, the Bible's promise to any repentant sinner is that the life to come The world beyond the windows is a place where God's love reigns supreme. Where you will dwell in inapproachable light and never again weep but only rejoice. That's what this gathering points to. The gathering. That's what this gathering of believers in Christ point to. The gathering to come. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. You see, in Nehemiah's day, they were realizing, oh, God is making us his kingdom of priests and holy nation. And we can look to us today, gather today, that's exactly what's happening this moment. Kingdom of priests, holy nation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, God has called us right now already to be his people, but he is, there is a gathering not yet in the future to come. Revelation chapter 7, remember this passage at the end of the Bible. It says this, this is a future event to come. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God 
salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Do you see what Israel's doing in Nehemiah? They're doing what we're all going to do at the end of time, at the great procession, the hope to come, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord, returning where we'll all worship him at that great gathering, at that great feast. Amen? Your hope is found, your joy is found in the hope to come. It's not found in your problems now. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. All joy reminds, it's never a possession. Always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. Oh, and friends, we are about to be gathered. Remember it. Your joy depends on it. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you. We give you great praise and glory for all that you've done for us. Help us to rejoice. Our hearts can be so, we can't see past the end of our own nose sometimes, God. I pray, Lord, that, oh, we would have clean windows, that we would remember what you're doing for us. Help us to rejoice, Lord, in the new life you've given us. God, I pray, Lord, that our joy could be heard far away, that we would share it with each other, and that it would be grounded in the life to come. God, I pray, Lord, if there's any Christians here struggling for joy, God, I pray, Lord, that you would teach them how to clean their windows so that they could see out of their house. God, thank you for our hope in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that the lamb was slain, that it should have been us that was slain, but it was you that were slain instead. And friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, this moment, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, and let the payment of your sin be put on him instead of you. He will take it, he will bear it, and he will give you a new life, something to rejoice about. And if that's you, if your heart is turning right now in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, tell him in the silence of your own heart. Say, God, I'm a sinner. I have ignored you. I have neglected you. I have not even seen you, but God, I see now. You've made all things. You've made me, and I deserve your justice for my sin. But because you love the world, you gave your only begotten Son. And if I believe in you, I will not perish but have eternal life. Friend, if that's you, you right now already have the life of Christ. Look through the windows, for he is coming. God, we turn to you now in repentance and faith, and we trust in you. We take our um, thoughts now and consider the death and resurrection of Christ as we are about to participate in communion together, Lord. God, the broken body represents, the, uh, the, bro the broken cracker represents the broken bl body of Christ. The juice represents the shed blood of Jesus. And brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're a Christian, we ask that you would just cleanse your heart right now from any unbelief or sin. Don't take the, the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. Take your 
confession now to the Lord in the privacy of your own heart. If you don't know Jesus Christ, we ask that you sit this part of our service out and do something more important, more special for you. Seek God in prayer. Ask God to reveal himself to you. God, we come to you in repentance and faith and humility. God, we thank you for what your word says. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. God, thank you that when we peer through the windows of our life that we can see Jesus waiting for the banquet, for the feast that we will be able to eat and drink with him in his kingdom forever. Amen.